Uh, welcome to the Muso Podcast. Today is exciting because we get to welcome, well, one of the best managers in the country. His passion for artists, yeah. second to none. And it's a beautiful journey too. I've been lucky enough to know this guy, I'd say for about 10 years, thumbs up. At least. At yeah. least 10 years. At least. Creative, innovative. Uh, listen up, kids. This is literally one of the best marketers in the country. Today is a oh, lesson wow. in thinking outside the box. Mr. Ben Stennis, welcome to the Muso Podcast, my friend. Wow. Thank you. What an introduction. Absolutely, man. I'm just trying Blessed. to get trying to get to the bones of where we met, man. I reckon it was 10 years ago at a little club, Click Click in Melbourne. Yeah. Uh, click Click or Shake Some Action or Sh- one of those some, ones. One of those ones. Probably while your band was performing or... I dare say. Maybe an after party. Potentially. Is that where it started for you, man? Tell us where your musical journey kind of began. It did, actually. I was at the uh, young age of about 15. My very lovely father helped me, I guess, get into DJing by lending me his speakers and a CD player. Yeah. I got a $50 mixer on probably the Gumtree or whatever the yeah. 2006 <laughs> equivalent was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I started DJing my friend. 15th and 16th birthday parties and you know that really got me in there early on and then skip a few years I started playing the nightclubs of Melbourne which uh, is where we met and um, was it hard to get a gig when you first started because it seemed like like around that time it, it would you know the scene was really kind of kicking off then wasn't it it felt like Melbourne was kind of it had this real kind of new energy about it then yeah I think I think back then especially in you know 2009 2010 you would mm. go to nightclubs and a DJ could be playing from 10 till 1 a.m. Yeah. And then at 1 a.m., a ridiculously good band would come on. Yeah. You know? You could see bands like Miami Horror, and I remember one night even Lady Gaga was playing. And no way. You'd, you'd be seeing all these <laughs> yeah. acts that would be playing these small rooms to not many people at all, and then over the next few years they would just absolutely blow up. And I think one of them was um, Skrillex, actually. No way. And when I got into DJing back then in the nightclubs, it was just surreal to see all these people, you know, grow up from yeah. DJing those 400, 500 person yeah. rooms to selling out stadiums around the world and yeah. felt very blessed to be, I guess, a part of that, even if I was just playing 50 minute mash- mashup sets of other people's music. still a lot of fun. Is that where you got like um, the drive to kind of start managing? Because, you know, you're managing your DJ career then, you're doing a lot of things around town. Is that when you started to kind of get the bug for it? Yeah, I think being able to, you know, go to those festivals like Falls Festival and Splendor in the Grass yeah. and, you know, be able to play the little dance tent or mm. play in, you know, what now is known as the toilet stage, I guess. <laughs> yeah. um, whatever it was, the, the Smirnoff bar, if we're allowed to say brand names, <laughs> yeah, I don't man. know. Yeah, man. But, you know, you'd get to enjoy that experience of going to a music festival and it really made me think what else happened behind the scenes. Yeah. And I guess, uh, you know, while I was DJing, I was uh, doing a sound production course at RMIT at the same time. Which was super amazing because I get to got to meet a lot of my good friends today. Really see what other aspects were involved in the music industry, and that's you know where I started to meet managers and I started to meet booking agents. Yeah, started to see it's more than just recording a song and releasing music. There's a lot more people involved in it, mm. and. I was very lucky when I left the audio production course at uh, RMIT after finishing it in uh, maybe 2012, I think it was. I uh, had a lunch meeting with a very good person called John Hanlon and he gave me a job as an admin at his uh, booking agency. Yeah, sick, man. So so what did that involve? Like day-to-day things, what kind of stuff are you doing? Oh, you know, I was uh, booking flights for (laughs) DJs, booking hotels, making sure that they had all the info they needed 
to get to their shows on time, whether yeah. that happened or not is <laughs> yeah. another story. From there, it really just evolved. The agency started getting a fair bit busier. And John, as he was touring quite a lot of international acts through that in the uh, 2012 mega boom of EDM, <laughs> as it was known, yeah. with artists like, you know, Avicii and Hardwell and all that. Yeah, it's a big scene, man. Huge scene. Stereosonic, rest in peace. Yep. It's very, very eclectic festival. You know, as, as those things were getting busy, he gave me a few artists to book, I guess. And one of those artists were... Uh, was peaking duck crazy man before just backtrack a little bit so yeah. if, if there are people listening right now who like are thinking about getting into management and you know we're are at that early stage where you know they're getting a feel for it would you recommend going out and approaching a booking agent a publicist to go and get some experience there before jumping into the deep end what i feel is the most important thing in growing as a person in the music industry is to really get involved in your scene, respect your scene, whether it's attending live music, really showing other bands that, you know, you want to get involved with their music. That's a really great way to build the foundations of what can be successful relationships in the future. Mm. So, you know, I guess through those years of DJing and, you know, playing in nightclubs four or five times a week yeah. and not just rocking up for my set, but sticking around and just chatting to people while it was probably bad for my liver, <laughs> yeah. it was really good for those connections that, you know, I've stayed in touch with to this day. And from those connections, you can, act, you know, you can work on building other relationships and, you know, what you, you might have started off wanting to I guess, be just a DJ, but then you might see, oh, wait, there's more involved. Management, booking yeah. agencies, publicity, record labels. Yeah. As long as you're there being proactive in the scene and not just, you know, rocking up for your gigs, leaving straight after, I think that's something really important and something that, you know, can go a very, very, very long way. Yeah, man, that's good advice. So tell us about the early days of Peking Duck. Like you said, they were working with John. They didn't have a manager at the time. How did that kind of relationship progress at the start? Yeah, so as I mentioned, I was I was uh, passed on the baton to be their booking agent back in 2012. Yeah, and you know back then they were releasing you know just like quite edgy dance music, four to the floor stompers, you know, just yeah. mind melting stuff, and they were playing a few gigs here and there, but. You know, it was quite an uphill battle sometimes to get them gigs, yeah. um, as it is in Australia because there are so, so many DJs and so few clubs. Yeah. The best thing about Adam and Ruben is that they would always be the best of friends with the promoters and they would always be the best of yeah. friends with the support acts. And, mm. you know, you just set a really good vibe from there. That was one of the things I noticed with being their booking agent is they would basically book themselves from yeah. just the vibe they emitted. And it was never this, you know, thing of just, uh, you know, rocking up and leaving. It was always having beers with the promoters, mm. getting down, getting dirty. And I really respected that. And, um, you know, from there, we, we, we did keep booking their shows. The music they were making was becoming a lot more eclectic and just more diverse. And from there, while, while we were still booking their shows, we really reined in that, you know, music and said, hey, let's focus on this song you've, you've done. Yeah, that's um, cool. This is a really amazing song. The sound is great. The sound is unique. And let's go from there. So, you know, wh while I was still officially their booking agent, it was uh, thinking outside the box and really just helping them see um, more than they were seeing, being that, you know, third member of the uh, 
duo mm. or band, you know, that's what led to become their manager. There was a bit of a journey there, you know. It was really getting stuck into the, that music and making sure that they were focusing on the songs that would have longevity yeah. for their careers. I think it really started with a remix they did of Passion Pit, mm. which was, you know, a bit of a slowed down electro sound, which, you know, at the time was quite unique. And then they went on to making their song uh, High. Oh. Which, um, <laughs> which you know, really set things off. And, you know, we were s- super lucky and super blessed to have that, you know, have them create that song because it really just put the wheels in motion for what was to come. Like I was going to say, man, like that song, an, an unbelievable hit, like just no doubt a hit. When you hear a song like that as a manager and that's given to you, is there a lot of responsibility? Do you have a clear direction for where you want to take it or is like each song is its own thing? Yeah, I mean, the direction that I had back then was probably a lot different to the direction I had today. Yeah. As a manager and as a young manager, you're you're always learning and sometimes the best things you can do is listen to the people around you and not be afraid to uh, <laughs> ask questions. <laughs> Yeah, because, you know, realistically, back then I I absolutely had, you know, I I guess I had experience through promoting clubs and selling tickets like that and marketing clubs sometimes is quite similar to music, but realistically, I knew nothing about the world from management. And yeah. what we were going off was just the feel and the gut in- instinct we had at the time. Yeah, And the gut instinct about high when we first heard it was we want to keep listening and listening and listening. When a song makes you want to listen to it over and over again, <laughs> yeah. I think that's a surefire sign that it is a song that needs to be released and it's a song that needs to be released with a good plan. You know, it, that was released through Vicious and Vicious are an amazing label and luckily through Vicious we met Peking Duck's first um, publicist, Anna Fitzgerald, who in my opinion is one of the best radio pluggers and publicists in Australia and she just set a really, really well-defined vision of how Peking Duck should roll out into the radio stratosphere. Yeah. And... <laughs> We got the we got the Triple J edition very early on and that was just, you know, life changing for us. We thought that was like that was the huge goal. And it was like, this is not the end. We've we've still got a lot of work to do here. She kept pushing it to Fox FM, Nova. Yeah. And they were we were lucky enough to have them add the song there. So it was just all these building blocks that, you know, the years of Adam and Ruben had built. What was it like, that journey, like all coming up together, like, you know, those small victories, getting Triple J, the song going gold and then getting on a commercial radio. It must have been such a buzz because like all of you are doing it together for the first time. Yeah, totally. I think it, it really made us change the way we thought about the strategies around Peking Duck. And the main thing we saw was as a club DJ, you go and rock up to the club, you might have some fans there but realistically you know nine times out of ten the crowd will be there because they love the club so they we noticed you know pre-high a lot of the people that were going to their shows were going because they liked the club post-high we'd see lines around the block and you know people that were going to the clubs really wanted to be there because they loved the music mm. and that for us was a reason why we sh- we changed their live music strategy and back then it was pretty unheard of to see DJs play 
by venues like the Corner Hotel. Yeah, I remember that. I think it was Rich Moffat who used to book the Corner Hotel. He was like, Bennis, you got to get yeah. Peking Duck into the Corner Hotel. I was like, oh, I don't know, man. Yeah. Making like 4K from the clubs, that's pretty sick. <laughs> yeah. He's like, nah, trust me, you need to, you need to sell tickets because that, that's when we'll book you on the festivals because yeah. you can prove how many tickets they can sell and, yeah. you know, all this. And truth be told, hadn't thought of that way, but we went into Corner First show sold out. We're like, whoa, that's <laughs> yeah. crazy. Yeah. I don't know about putting a second one on though. Like, that's pretty risky, dudes. Yeah. Like, it might only sell 50 tickets or whatever. We don't know. Yeah. Put the second show on, second sold out. And then um, the third and fourth sold out. And, you know, that was just the moment where we learned that sometimes saying no to things like club shows yeah. is better in the long run because it, you know, creates that demand. So less is more, you know, that's really been what we kind of look back to even at this stage is that less is more and if you keep playing things it really just reduces your appeal because you're always in the market Mm. i feel like from a very early stage i don't know if this was intended or not but a peaking duck gig is like a show it's like an event it's not just like you're going and listening to djs it's very interactive i feel like they really show a lot of their personality in a performance when they're djing a lot of crowd involvement i think people find that quite infectious was that deliberate or just kind of the way it happened yeah i think um you know when we had high it was quite a few years until they had the amount of songs required to be able to play an exciting set full of originals yeah so up until that point you know they would be doing one hour sets but it might have been 50 duck music 50 percent other people's music which is fine because you know that is that is what a dj set is and they've always had that i guess label as the party set of a festival and that that party set label has stayed true to this day even if they're playing 100 their originals because yeah. their background you know is rock and roll is hip-hop and they admire all these old rock and roller dudes from you know motor race and yeah you know, Metallica or whoever it was and how good their stage shows actually were. Mm. And while it's all well and good to rock up to a festival like Splendor, for example, plug in a USB stick and play a really amazing set, we were always of the opinion that if you're playing these sets, the crowd always deserves more and they deserve the best because they've come all this way. Mm. And I think that's some of the best marketing that we've ever done Yeah, is to deliver a show that, you know, defies expectations because from one point, everyone expects the um, international acts to bring the noise and bring the firepower. But even if it meant losing money on a show, we would treat those shows as a marketing exercise to promote the live tours. Yeah. Because there's that crowd there that might have never seen a show before. Mm. And if you've got, if you're playing a festival, for example, that has all these amazing music outlets and publications at it and they go and review that show, that's just priceless. So while it's partially us wanting to have fun with pyrotechnic <laughs> fireworks and flames around, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A, lot of it, a lot of it is, you know, setting that precedent for high production standards early on in the game. And to this day, we've still never made money off, you know, playing a festival yeah, right. like that because to us it's just about giving back to the crowds and then, you know, we focus on other other revenue streams. I don't know if I should have said that. No, no, no. Well, That's I, okay. Well, dude, I mean, like you've given so many people so many memorable performances. I mean, Richard Kingsmill said Splendor was one of the best shows he's ever seen. When you guys headlined Splendor, like there were there was talk about that going around for months, that that was one of the best gig gigs that anyone has seen and proof is in the pudding. Like you guys went and did, you know, playing huge shows at Rod Laver and things like that. What was it like going from uh, the DJ set to 
the live show uh, as a manager? Like, was that a, a lot to kind of play with? And, you know, you're doing fireworks. You know, it, there is no other kind of stage show like that in this country. It must have been a lot to kind of take on. Oh, totally. I think the most important thing when thinking about, uh, you know, the live show, if you are an upcoming band, is that scalability. And where you might st- start up, out with, you know, three members in your band, you might think, oh, let's add a horn section, let's add whatever it might be. But once you set that precedent of having that many people on stage, it's like, where do you take it from there? So, you know, the DJ set to this day is still an amazing set. And, you know, the guys are playing DJ sets um, this weekend and next, um, which the crowds are just frothing for because they haven't been let out of their houses in a year or they haven't been to a festival in a year. And when they hear those songs, there'll just be no other feeling like it but we did you know once we did have that hour worth of Peking Duck original music we did want to take it to that next level and get yeah. a drummer get some singers yeah and um get the guys guitars and synths which they can play amazingly well mm. so we did that but you know you do find once you add all those uh, pieces of instruments the extra crew like 15 crew members the costs do start to go up yeah so you have to be really careful you know it's that fine balance between how big do we want to take the show and what the profitability is like Definitely, man. And I guess after the year we've had with these festivals not going on anymore and Peking Duck are such a festival band, I've really noticed that you guys have always done this better than most people, I feel, is collaborating with brands. I mean, how important is that now that gigs and things like that are pretty uncertain at this time? Yeah, I th- we've always loved the um, the power of the brand partnership. I think, um, you know, there's been a stigma attached with partnering up with brands and doing sponsored posts that it might be selling out. But realistically, if you can make these streams of ancillary income and, you know, add more money to your bottom to your bottom line, you can reinvest that or, you know, you can start to think about the long term profitability of your band as a business. And I think a lot of people do forget sometimes that bands or solo artists or DJs, it's technically a business and it's why you know you should always think from the get-go what the long-term goals are and how you're going to meet them and I think there's so much goodness and positivity to be had in brand partnerships that is sometimes overlooked and it's called a partnership for a reason because the brand does get something out of it but you get a lot of out of it as well and it goes beyond just making some money from that partnership Mm. You know, you can you can use their audience to push your message or push your single or push your album respective respectfully. And um, as long as you're seeing them as an opportunity to market, then it can be like a really powerful thing to do. So I guess the a, a good example was uh, when Peking Duck was doing a partnership with uh, Crust Pizza. This was probably four years ago now. Yeah, I remember that. You know, there was the Crust Pizza aspect of it to market their pizzas and Peking Duck saying they loved Crust Pizza, which, you know, I think everyone does. But um, Crust Pizza from their side could also tee up things like a Nova Red Room, which helps with radio. And um, they emailed me and they're like, can we get our delivery drivers wearing Peking Duck merch? And I was like... (laughs) Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Why not? You know? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's all about that brand recognition now. So totally. people that are ordering pizzas at home start seeing this logo. Yeah. And they see flyers in their pizza boxes that said, cop the next Peking Duck single. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's an example of a way that this is a true partnership because 
it works both ways and both brands being Peking Duck and Crust get a lot out of it. Yeah, man. Genius. And you know what? A lot of a lot of the campaigns we do are probably a lot more out there than a lot of bands would want to do. Mm. But I think it comes down to each and in each individual and each band. Yeah. And how far they want to take this. But I think if you're thinking about that early on in your strategy and how you can form these relationships then you're going to be looked upon favorably you know five or six years down the track when brands are out there saying who can we work with Mm. and they say you've done something early on even if it's your mates you know t-shirt brand or whatever it is they'll just say all right they've had a respectful two-way relationship with someone that's someone we can work with before even if you're the biggest band in Australia and you've never done a brand partnership before, there's not going to be that, you know, same, uh, I guess, there's not going to be that um, acknowledgement from the brand side that you can nail a successful campaign because you've yeah. never done it before. Yeah, and it, it seems like that's a relationship that always stays there. It's not like you'll do one thing with them and then it's cut off, you know, this and then like how you started your early career, you know, you work in a booking agency and that led to this and that led to that. I'm sure you've experienced working with one brand, you meet people who work there. Like it's just kind of the gift that keeps on giving really. Yeah, totally. And, you know, those are are contacts that are always growing and they don't happen overnight Mm. and um, they're never going to happen overnight and they're always building. But as long as you're doing good things and respecting the guidelines and, you know, getting back to people in a time fashion yeah. or whatever it might be, you know, treating these things as true business, whether you are a self-manager artist or not, you know, those are the things that people love and they'll talk about to their peers as well. If you are a kind of young and upcoming manager and you, you really just want to get into it, is it best to wait for the right band, do you think? What do you think the best way to do it is? I mean, uh, as a manager, I think if you want to be a successful manager, I think you should always be thinking about the long term. And I'm not sure that it's right to go and pick up a band for a year or two because realistically you want to be with them for the full career and you know if you are thinking about those long-term goals you're thinking further than two or three years you're thinking 20 years sometimes and 30 years or whatever it might be Mm. as for getting into it you know the bands that I've signed you know they've always come come to me through you know close contacts and it's always been very natural and signing people that I can be you know friends with and get along with and have that really good harmony with and be you know the third or fourth member of the band yeah um so yeah i guess there's no wrong or right way to get into management it's one of those things that i think just happens sometimes you know Mm. when i was working for the booking agent i don't think i was thinking oh i'm gonna be a manager next you know i think it was a very natural process of booking their gigs but also doing things around those gigs that led to other things and that's when we started the management company yeah how do you go with time management man i mean like your roster has grown benson hands like houses as well i've point of recording today just come back from byron you're going to sydney tomorrow how do, <laughs> how do you juggle it all oh i think it's uh i think one of the perks of the job is that you can pretty much work from it anywhere you know in the uber here i was working on emails mm. I, I i love that aspect of the job that you know it is it is quite flexible in a way i think the biggest respects that you can give your artist is the time and time and day and that proactiveness that you know sometimes is missing in the industry um so i would never want to take on more artists than i could personally handle because i think they deserve that attention from the management that 
management that signed them. Mm. But, you you know, last year there was a lot of free time. <laughs> How do you handle that? I mean, it, it must have been a weird position being a manager and, you know, you are looking after these acts and they look to you and the future's so uncertain. Yeah, I, uh, you know, I think we were lucky to be able to take it as it was and use it as a time to, you know, reflect on the last few years and look to the next mm. five years or whatever it was. It was a terrible time for the industry, but wow, I learned a lot of good recipes being locked in home <laughs> and uh, started cooking quite a bit. And You already cooked a lot before. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think being, you know, on the road and traveling so much over the last few years, it was, yeah, you know, while it wasn't amazing being forced into that situation, there was something nice about it. You know, I think from there now it's ramping up and there's a lot going on. Time management is so important, mm. especially, you know, when you know your, your release dates months in advance to make sure that you're not in a holiday in Tahiti when that song's <laughs> being released so you can yeah. actually be actively pushing it. <laughs> yeah, man. I was going to say, like, how much time goes into before a single's released? I mean, I think for a lot of people listening now, um, that's kind of a bit of a mystery to them. When you are releasing a Hands Like House and Benson or or Peking Dark, like how far ahead? Yeah, uh, it, it changes for every every band. You know, with the Hands Like Houses guys, they're you know they're amazing because they're so so organized, and we can plan their album releases sometimes a year in ahead, yeah, a year in advance. But then you know, up until last year, before Duck went off and wrote ten singles. We were, you know, planning on the go. It was like yeah. every three months we'd have a new single and we'd use that to plan out when it should drop, you know. We'd look at everything surrounding that, like potential tour dates or festival dates that we could use to push that single and to amplify that single. And we'd say, yeah, here's the best time we could release that. Mm. And I think they're also quite unique in a way because they've never released an album. and uh, Which is incredible, by the way. Yeah, thank you. I, I, I think, you know, it was quite unheard of up until recently. Yeah. Um, but that that was the way that dance musics did release, dance musicians did release things. It was single by single with potentially, you know, some remixes attached. Was there ever any pressure to do an album? Uh, there's a lot of questions as to why we don't release an album. And I think it's genius, man. Yeah. I, I think it's the way music is now. They were kind of, you guys were a bit of ahead, ahead of the game in that respect, I think. Yeah, I, I think um, the idea of releasing an album has some pros, but it also has some cons. And those are all the things you should think about when determining your release strategies, I, I think, you know. What are the cons? From releasing an album? Yeah. I mean, I just don't know if people are digesting the album music the same way that they were yeah. 10 or 20 years ago. Um, when you can specifically select your favorite songs from the album, some of the songs might get neglected, which is fine because you get those super fans that really love listening to the album from uh, top to bottom. And I think if you can sell that album on vinyl or any other media format that forces them to listen to it in that, you know, kind of top to bottom pipe style, <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it's a really powerful thing. And it's, a, it's also a really powerful thing for doing, you know, tour strategies and teeing up those dates. But I think the the idea of releasing a single absolutely going on going ham on it and, you know, lining up these really amazing assets for that, which might tie in your artwork, video, TikToks, for example, mm. that can that's really exciting too. So, you know, it definitely, definitely, definitely changes from band to band as to whether a single by single release yeah. strategy is best or a single to EP release strategy mm. or an album to album release strategy, strategy, which would, of course, include lead singles. Absolutely, man. 
I mean, you've been in the game for a while. It's and a lot's changed. You know, people are buying CDs, then Spotify, then TikTok. Is it easy to kind of stay on top of this kind of stuff? No. Oh no, absolutely not. I, I mean, so. there's always so many different outlets and things are changing, ever changing, and yeah. you know, it goes back to the best thing you can do is listen to your peers or you know, learn from people that you wouldn't normally learn from, you know, in TikTok case, it's talking to 18 and 19 year olds and working out how they do digest all their music and how they discover new music. And mm. and I think unless you're proactively seeking these things out 24 hours a day, you're never going to be able to be on top of them. Mm. You know, like I'll, yeah. I'll go home at night and have amazing chats um, with my partner about the world of gaming and how many streamers and Twitch and casters out there are so unfathomably popular with millions of subscribers. And I think, you know, the music industry also has a lot to learn from that. So yeah. I think it's really just looking outside the ecosystem and, you know, learning, learning from all this amazing stuff happening in the world that is constantly a change in. Mm. Were you supporting a lot of things like collaboration and stuff, a lot of your acts doing that over the last year? Yeah, definitely. And while traditionally, I guess until recently, we would have seen, you know, dance music as the go-to for collaborating, but mm. there's a lot to learn from collaborating and being able to share the, I guess, online audience as well of those potential collaborators. And it, it, it's something we're constantly thinking about with, you know, the Hands Like Houses guys, like who could we get them to collaborate with? And um what that could do for their audience and just really exciting things like that. And, you know, I personally think the collaborations Peking Duck have done have been super, super influential in how they've gone overseas because mm. you're connecting with that audience that might not have actually heard of you before. Mm. And a lot of those relationships came from, you know, meeting those artists at conferences, meeting them at bars, meeting them at house parties, whatever it might be. And, you know, that goes further than any a&R introduction could go from a, from a label. And I think probably 70% of the time, that's how those things have eventuated. Yeah, man. As far as advice for, you know, bands coming up, you know, you get a lot of people, you know, inside the industry kind of telling bands which way to go. You should do this. You should do that. How important is it to, you know, stay true to yourself? Yeah, I, I think if you build your team around you with the right people that are respectful of, you know, your true selves, then you shouldn't actually be having those discussions. And as soon as you do, you know, you really have to be questioning if those people, you know, should be involved in your team. But I think that comes down to, you know, if you're building a relationship over time from a non-business sense as well, those people should always be batting for you. And, mm. and you know, <laughs> I always have disagreements with my artists um, about, you know, what song should come next or how a song sounds or, you know, but I truly believe that's because as a manager, you're probably only one of the only few people that say no to your artist and you're not a constant yes man. Yeah. And I think that's also why honesty is the best policy. If you start to build that trust with your peers early on, then that's a truly beautiful thing that can, you know, mm. help take you to the next level. And that goes with every 
one that's, you know, I guess um, involved in the business relationship with a band and it goes from, you know, their bookkeepers to their publicists to their agents to their um, record label. I think we've been, I've been truly lucky to just work with some really amazing people and, you know, the people that don't align either (laughs) learn to align or Mm. might move on to the next artist. But, you know, there's a reason why Dark have never changed their booking agency in 10 years and that because we are truly aligned on all those things you know if they want to do something just really crazy (laughs) like shoot fireworks down in hobart or wherever it might be yeah then you know we respect that yeah 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 as long as we've got the uh right uh insurance (laughs) you know yeah yeah (laughs) but the music's just coming up man it is a weird time at the moment gigs are chopping and changing and you know there's venue capacity and things like that any advice you'd have for you know musicians that are kind of just wanting to start out now yeah i mean it might be uh boring but you know as i said earlier you have to treat yourself like a business sometimes that includes doing really boring stuff like cash flow forecasting and budgets you know if you can get a budget like spreadsheet off the internet that lets you plug in all the money you'll spend on flights or even petrol or Mm. extra lighting and you can see the profit and loss or potentials of a show then you know that can be that can save you from a lot of uh grief yeah and we've all been through that i think <laughs> you know random costs pop up here and there <laughs> yeah. but especially when the the venues are reduced you know you have you take that budget and you actually you know budget for like a 50 percent sellout sometimes yeah. or even you work out what the break even point is and you you know you you ask yourself if that's feasible Mm. That's really good advice, man. I think a lot of bands wouldn't think of doing that, which is something every band should really do, you know, especially look after that cash. Man, thanks so much for joining us, man. We kind of ask uh, our guests at the end of every show, you had a pinch yourself moment across the way, man? Is there, is there been a time where you're just like, I can't believe I'm here. I can't believe this is happening. I don't know if this will ever happen again. Oh, yeah. I mean... <laughs> I think I, you've had probably more than any I other guest we've had on this show. I've been very blessed and I'll never take any of these experiences for granted. I think it was probably a sunny Coachella year in 2015, I think it was was 2016 i should probably know that one of those years they blend into each other peking duck have just uh gotten off the stage at the sahara tent this is probably a three minute story so strap yourselves in i'm ready and uh you know we're backstage having a good time and then what do you know Paris Hilton comes up. <laughs> really lovely person. Yeah. Get a photo with her, share a glass of Belvedere, whatever it might have been, you know. Yeah, yeah. She was just down to hang. Yeah. Just like, you know, with Adam and I, and it was a really good time. But um, I, I don't, I think that really set the scene for what was going to happen straight after the Coachella tour in America, where we mm. flew from Los Angeles to, I think, uh, Ho Chi Minh City, yeah. Saigon in Vietnam. <laughs> yeah. And we were pretty tired at that stage, like going hard at Coachella, getting on a flight, lack of sleep, yeah. let's be honest. Of course. And we rocked up at Ho Chi Minh, went through border control, <laughs> get outside to meet the promoters of this upcoming show. And there were seven supercars <laughs> lined up. <laughs> At the airport with Peking Duck uh, written on the side of them. (laughs) What do you mean? Seven cars? Come on, guys. We would have been so fine with a 12-seater high ace. (laughs) Or a tuk-tuk. Matt spent a lot of time in those for sure. Yeah, absolutely. The 12-seater high ace. We would have been so fine with, you know, at that point we would have been fine with catching a bus into the city. (laughs) I don't know. I think we're always down to just do whatever the locals do, but the promoter and their business partner had picked us up in seven 
supercars, <laughs> one of them being a Bentley. So we all which, in different cars? We were all in different cars. Okay. I think I think got the short straw and had to go in a BMW convertible <laughs> or something, but you know, yeah. that's all right. Yeah. And uh we we started driving. We were still groggy. We had no idea what day or time it was because we've gone through a few time zones by this point and we finally got to the place that the gig was at which was this guy called Donnie's Castle in Saigon and there's not many castles in Saigon. Hang on, it's an actual castle? It's a castle (laughs) that wasn't built in the 1400s, it was built in the 2000s by Donnie because he really loved castles. Are you kidding me? And um, What gig was this? So this was a gig with client liaison, funnily enough, okay. in, um, I think it's called Long Island Castle. Gotcha. I'll show you the photos after this. It's pretty crazy. Because we were so tired, we're just like, I don't know what's going on. But anyway, <laughs> they've got a show in six hours. And they're like, all right, we'll put your bags in one of the castle rooms. Oh, and like, so you yeah, stay at the so castle. Yeah. Like, wait, what? And they're like, oh, do you want to stay at the castle or the hotel in the city? And we're like, oh, fuck yeah, we'll stay at the castle. Yeah. I don't know. Sweet. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, we had a great week staying at... Donnie, Donnie's castle, a and week. he was driving us around the whole of Saigon in his seven-car motorcade <laughs> with Peking duck ridden on the side of them. It's the most outrageous <laughs> stuff ever that would we would never agree to. But you yeah. know, it was fun. As we went to uh, manicures with Donnie, we went to buffets <laughs> with Donnie, went to eat soup with Donnie. <laughs> yeah, time came to depart the Donnie castle and head to Da Nang with a festival we were playing with Venga Boys. <laughs> <laughs> so all this is. In- space of like two weeks no no this is in the space of like three days um <laughs> plus the week that we spent at the castle yeah, yeah so yeah, probably yeah. a week and a half oh my god we played the festival with donnie we played the festival with venga boys and we partied until the sunrise sun rose in da Nang. and i think it was probably about 6 a.m where we started doing the limbo <laughs> and um yeah. there was no limbo pole so the was the um the policeman and the cowboy from the Venga Boys picked me up by my legs and arms and used me as the limbo pole. And to this day, I am still friends with the Venga Boys. It's amazing. Yeah. See them every time they come to Melbourne, but I think I'm always known as as the uh, Venga Boys limbo pole, <laughs> Vietnamese lim- limbo pole it is. I think that uh, tops any kind of pinch yourself moment I might have ever heard in my whole entire life. Better Dennis, thank you so much for joining us, man. Thank you. Always a pleasure to chat to you in general, but this has been super informative, insightful, man. I think a lot Lovely. of people are going to get a lot from this, dude, and uh, I'll see you for a photo soon. Oh, love that. Thanks, guys. How good was that? Bernice Dennis. Myriad management, looking after the careers of hands like houses, Benson, and of course, Peking Duck. Got a lot from that. Such an interesting story. Hey, you can keep up to date with everything that's going on at Muso, at Muso app on the socials. And of course, if you are a musician, you're looking to get out there and play some gigs, register now. Musoapp.com.au will get you out there and playing. And I'll see you next time on the Muso podcast.